Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Edward the Third. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Yeah. And uh, we're really powering along now, and we are on to one of the legendary medieval warrior kings, Edward III. Now, sometimes at this point I lay out my stall and say straightway whether I think he's got the Rex Factor, having done little <laughs> to no research. Now, I know this dude, and my money, I'm betting it all on Rex Factor. There's a lot to him, so we're going to rush straight in and presumably you can remember how to contact us if you want to (laughs) so Edward III is born in 1312 son of Edward II and Isabella of France and he becomes king in 1327 so he's only about 14 years old at the time and he's the 17th great grandfather of Elizabeth II very nice indeed so if you remember last time Edward II, um, our current king's father, had been overthrown. So there had been great dissatisfaction with his reign. He'd been having all these favourites, initially Piers Gaveston yeah. and Hugh Spencer. So Isabel of France, aggrieved, had gone off to France, met up with an escaped uh, rebel leader, yeah. Roger Mortimer. They fell in love, had an affair, came back, invaded England, overthrew Edward, executed his allies and had the young Edward III crowned king. Yeah. And then after a few failed attempts to rescue Edward II, presumably, though some people dispute this, Edward II, at Mortimer's orders, was murdered. He got it. It was rather a clean victory for Mortimer, isn't it? It went exactly as he planned. It went exactly as he planned. Can it stay that way? Well. He acquires great power, Roger Mortimer, at this stage, because Edward III is a minority, he's only a young boy, mm. and he's in love with... Mortimer's in love with Isabella, the Queen Mother... He's got great power, so he acquires marcher lordships of the dispensers who've been murdered, the office of Justicia of Wales, so a very powerful man over there, lots of lands in Ireland, names himself the Earl of March, knights his sons. He's taking lots and lots of power. Is he taking lots and lots of liberties? Indeed, and uh, Isabella's doing it as well. So she triples the value of her original dower lands that she came over with. So she's getting about £13,000 a year from her lands, which is more than the overmighty subject Thomas Lancaster of the previous reign. Lots and lots of money, and various lands and castles as well. And Mortimer gets rid of some of his key allies, um, not allies, rivals, in particular the Earl of Kent, who is the uncle of Edward III. He um, sends him, via some friars, a letter claiming that Edward II is alive and well at Corfe Castle. Kent, taken in by this, writes back that he plans to rescue and restore his brother, and of course, this is entrapment, so the letter gets sent back to Roger Mortimer, yeah, yeah. who then says, Oh, you're planning to overthrow Edward III and conspire against him. Well, so hang on, hang on, this is Edward III's uncle. Yes, it is. But if he's going to restore Edward II, so he's that means he's to... plotting technically to overthrow the anointed king. He defies this Kent chap. He'd, mm. He's in a perfect position. He's related to the royal family. He, he'd be fairly settled, wouldn't he? Well, except, of course, that. Edward III has very limited freedom because he's still a minor and Mortimer is in pretty mm. much control. So okay. Kent put before Parliament and uh, is sentenced Done to with. death. Done with. Done. Indeed. Of course, there's outrage. No one is willing to wield the axe of the 
usual executor won't do it, no one that they can find will do it, they actually have to release the condemned prisoner in order to get someone to... And does he then get his and freedom? And he does then get his freedom and chops so up again. So it's a good bargain. So I wonder if he's been in prison for murder. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what he's doing. And Mortimer goes further. He's got real sights on power. It was said at the time, so proud and high that he held no lord of the realm, his equal, and even was riding alongside Edward himself rather than respectfully just behind him. Oh dear. More than that... He's uh, at court, he's styling himself as King Arthur when they have role plays at tournaments. Rather than Edward, the king, it's Mortimer who's dressing up and pretending to be Arthur. He's even claiming descent from Arthur. And it was reputed that that line would one day come to rule England and Wales. So he's, uh, he's almost setting himself up not just to be powerful lord, but actually to be king. He's doing a Gaveston. Well, he's doing more than a Gaveston because he's the man who's actually in control. In control yeah. he's, got, he's got it all to go. And Edward III is really just a powerless pawn, never allowed out of Mortimer's sights, spies in his household, can't really trust anyone, and you know he's in danger of losing everything. However, Mortimer is starting to show a few cracks in the surface. Yeah, well. <laughs> and he's also having a few troubles. <laughs> So in uh, Scotland, um, he, 1327, he goes up to stop them invading, but then he comes to a peace treaty with the Scots at the Treaty of Northampton in 1328, whereby he recognises Scottish independence, and it's a great victory for Robert Bruce, but Edward, absolutely furious that he doesn't get his chance to kick and hammer the Scots. So he's recognised as having the uh, authority to negotiate like this, because he, oh, so yeah. he's, he's regent, well, he's technically he's not regent. There yeah. is a regency council, but Mortimer's walking all over it because he's in league with Isabella, the Queen Mum. Right, OK. So Edward's very unhappy about this, prevents Isabella from returning the Stone of Scone, mm. which they wanted to do, that coronation stone. But anyway, that's vocal opposition for the first time to Mortimer from Isabella, the young Edward okay. oh, right, okay. that he's starting to show. Then he has some uh, family things which push him. So he's married to uh, Philippa of Hainault. This is Edward III. Right. So he's now got someone he's actually he's got an ally a confidant him. and someone with him. And then in 1330, despite the fact they're both very young, his firstborn son, the uh, legendary Black Prince, otherwise known as Edward Woodstock, is born. So he's now got a bit of dynastic confidence behind yeah. him. Yeah. So he's got an heir already. So is it, that's his legitimacy, getting more and more exactly. entrenched here. Yeah. Mortimer getting more and more paranoid, controlling every movement of um, Edward III. However, Edward does make a friend in his household, a young man called William Montague, and he's able to trust him. Together, they decide that they want to overthrow him, overthrow Mortimer. As Montague says to Edward, better to eat a dog than be eaten by the dog. <laughs> Why isn't that phrase caught on? I don't know, maybe it should, yeah. maybe that's Always what... dog eat dog. Well, yes, there you go. <laughs> so, they're planning to uh, overthrow him, but Montague is aware that... Uh, Mortimer's aware that something's up. Mm. So, he's staying at Nottingham Castle in um, 1330 with Isabella and with Edward III under tight guard. Montague is there as well with some of his men, and they're questioned by Mortimer that he thinks there might be a plot, but even though he's suspicious, he doesn't have anything against them, so he lets them go. So, that day, Montague and his men vocally and noisily leave the castle so everybody knows that they've gone but then that night quietly under pitch back they come back back to the castle to the um, castle mound right at the foot where there are less torches and guards and they were in league with the keeper of the castle a man called William Elland who told them about a secret passageway into the castle that cool. nobody else knew about so they enter through this passageway climb up a steep pitch dark tunnel 
which c brings them out right in the heart of the belly of the castle where they're met by Edward III, who's waiting for them. Rush along, take out Mortimer's men, and before he can get his armour and sword on, they arrest him. Arrest him, send him off to London. Mortimer is overthrown, and Edward Boom. restored... To oh, the king. wow. That's brilliant. Fantastic. Really exciting stuff. Yeah. Mortimer is put before Parliament, sentenced to death. For? Um, well, for being <laughs> murdering Edward II, oh, um, yeah. okay. assuming powers of kingship, killing lots of people. Lot, there's a big list of mm. crimes that he is very guilty of. Okay, so everyone's, everyone was waiting for some of like this. Exactly. Hung, drawn and quartered. First person executed the infamous gallows at Tyburn. Oh, right. Which would be the ones oh, for no. many a famous Rex execution, Fax. indeed. And Isabella poses a bit of a problem for Edward because, mm. of course, she was in league with Roger Mortimer, but he doesn't really want to execute his own mother, <laughs> no, obviously, no. and he doesn't want to cause too much of a scandal. So what he does is publicly proclaim that she's been led astray by Mortimer um, rather than her own evilness. So she's initially stripped of her lands, but actually later recovers much of her original dower and lives out in quite comfortable retirement before eventually dying in uh, 1358. Yeah, because she was all right. I mean, she... she was pretty cunning in her own way. Very cunning and very clever, but once she gets power, she mm. then, then takes her over yeah. a bit. She enriches herself and enriches Mortimer, yeah. and it brings her downfall. But she lives out, and it's not too bad. Hmm. So, he's now in control. His early role, he faces quite a number of challenges, not least the Old Alliance, as in A-U-L-D, the Alliance of the French and the Scots. Oh. Since 1204 and the loss of Normandy under King John, English territory in France were getting smaller and smaller, so they basically just got a narrow strip along the coast in uh, Gascony. And they fear that if they lose that, then France is going to be able to actually launch an invasion of England. And if you have a combination of France and Scotland, yeah, well, that's serious that. trouble. Yeah. However, things take a turn for the better. In Scotland, 1329, Robert the Bruce dies. Replaced by uh, his son, David Bruce, David II, but Edward supports a rival claimant called Edward Balliol, who's descended from oh, someone John. else, indeed. Yeah. Um, he struggles to establish himself, but Edward III has a great victory against the Scots at the Battle of Halidon Hill in 1333, but isn't really able to develop it into a full conquest, and Balliol never able to get full support, but he's able to contain the Scots. Right. Things also develop quite importantly in France, because in 1328... Um, French King Charles IV dies without a male heir. So the Capetian line, which had lasted from 937, has died out. So there's a new uh, dynasty in France, the Valois, who come in under Philip VI of France. Now, Philip VI is keen to impose himself, demands that Edward do him homage for Gascony. Mm. Um, and he's also quite uneasy at Edward's alliances with some of the European rivals in the Low Countries, Belgium, etc. So there's uh, quite a lot of tension going on. However, something different happens now, because usually English kings would go over, kick up a bit of a fuss, and then pay homage and everything would turn to normal. Mm. Edward III, because his mother, Isabella of France, was a daughter of a French king, a brother of a French king, Edward III actually has just as good a claim to the French crown oh, yeah, as Philip VI. Yeah. So this is a way for him to get out of vassal status and actually say, actually, I'm due all of this land, this is mine. So 1337, he publicly proclaims himself the King of France, and the Hundred Years' War begins. Yes. That's <laughs> how it all begins. Probably something you've heard of, but maybe never actually knew what it was. This is where it comes from. But, so let's, before we get into this, at the mm. moment, he's got as much claim to the throne as anyone, because the line is dead, and he, but he was still a, a, a you know, he's part of a that. A direct blood relation. Yeah. yeah. And they've just got a very small strip of land in Gascony. Yeah. 
So we're it, they're on the they're holding on by their fingernails. Yes, very much. Then he claims France with bold. Yes, very bold. <laughs> I think we can all agree that this is pretty much mine now. <laughs> Early campaigning, he wins. Um, he wins support from England and his allies, but Philip VI quite wisely refuses to come out and have a actual full-out open battle. The Allies prove expenses to maintain, and despite relieving the threat of an invasion with a great naval back and battle at um, Sluy, S-L-U-Y-S, no idea how to pronounce that, that he doesn't make good. any headway by land. So it comes to a bit of a constitutional crisis, 1341, where he basically runs out of money and Parliament won't grant him any more taxes, so he's forced to come to an accommodation with his ministers um, right. before anything else can happen. However, things then take a very, very positive turn for Edward. 1345 to 47, he has a fantastic campaign, takes a huge army across to France, wins an overwhelming victory at the Battle of Cressy, one of the big famous yeah. battles of English history. Yeah. David II of Scotland at the same time invades, tries to take Durham while Edward's in France, but again is defeated and captured. So they caught the King of uh, Scotland. And then the next year, 1347, they successfully besiege and capture Calais. Ah, oh, crucial. So in a few years, Edward's huge gains in France massive massive and he's still turn. quite young still very young yeah he's only sort of what 30 at this point yeah peak of his powers fighting takes a, a bit of a backstage then in 1348 when the Black Death uh, makes oh, its way time, across yeah. Europe initially France but then comes to England in the south coast and just in two years it's made it all the way up to Scotland mm. huge devastation about a third of the English population dies um, and fighting sort of stops but by 1350 it sort of goes away and things largely carry on again, and the fighting breaks out again with France. Then 1356, his eldest son, the Black Prince, has a great victory at the Battle of Poitiers, and now they capture the French king. Um, Philip VI had died, his son John II came and replaced him. So now they capture John II. So they've got the King of Scotland and the King of France captured. Hey, hell. Checkmate. And then 1360, the Treaty of Brittany... Edward relinquishes his claim to the French throne, but in return he is given ownership of Calais, Gascony, and a very enlarged Aquitaine um, territory, mm. which is about 25% of France. So he oh. suddenly he's got a huge French empire. In 1360, he is at the absolute peak. This is like um, uh, who was who was it? He had the Angevin Empire. Henry II. Yeah, are we talking that sort of size then? Similar-ish, yeah, maybe slightly mm. smaller than that, but huge. Back, and unlike Henry yeah. II, he's won it all by battle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, from 1360, things go a little bit downhill for Edward III. Plague um, returns to England several times, and it's much more damaging these times because there isn't a population sort of surplus to yeah, fill the gaps, cool. much more damage. There's also a dying generation. People are getting quite old now, and a lot of Edward's great knights... They're dying out. He's outliving his own generation. Moreover, his family is starting to suffer. So his sister dies. His second son, Lionel, dies. All from the plague? Uh, no, just oh, he's right, dying. Right. Only one of his family, his daughter, dies of the plague. The Black Prince from 1367, debilitated by illness, not really able to do any more soldiering. His wife, uh, Philippa of Hainault, ill with dropsy from 1367, then dies in 1369. His grandson, the son of the Black Prince, dies in 1370. Oh, heavy. Very heavy. And worse still, in France, the new king, Charles V, much more aggressive and switched on than his predecessors, starts winning back French territories, and Edward isn't able to go over to um, attack. He had planned an invasion in 1369, but stopped it to be at Philippa's side when she died. Sweet. 
1370s, it really goes into decline. France, basically all of the treat, um, the um, territory other than Calais and that Gascony strip go back to France. So he's pretty much back where he started. All pretty much won back again into French oh. hands. Um, and Edward goes into a really sad decline, broken emotionally by the deaths of his family, of his friends, probably debilitated by um, some strokes as well, which right. may have led to a sort of mental uh, degeneration as well. He largely withdraws from public life. For so how long? When is this from? This is up the 13, later 1370s, probably from about 1372, right. is the last point at which he's really at the forefront. Comes to rely on his notorious mistress, Alice Perez, who um, from 1366 was his mistress, a maid of Philippa's, and she came to exert a lot of influence over him and get lots of wealth and lands, and she was sort of almost trying to control political events at home, and he's just not really in touch. Mm. 1376, Parliament tries to um, put a stop to this, so it became known as the Good Parliament, where the House of Commons protested against the nation's ills and military defeats, blames the new ministers and Alice Perez, and they are banished as well as Richard II, the grandson of um, Edward III, being declared as heir to the throne. Instead of the Black Prince? Of one, no, instead of, because unfortunately the Black Prince dies in 1376. So right. the eldest son yeah. has died. So this is his second youngest grandson, after the one that had originally died. Family did die, die Family dying out. So his beloved son and heir, the Black Prince, has died. His wife has died. It's all gone to part. And in 1377, Edward suffers a final stroke and dies with just apparently one priest by his bedside. Not even Alice Perez there anymore. And he dies at the age of 65. Poor guy. I mean, in an otherwise glorious reign, all he's just supported by a good parliament and all these people. That's yeah. And but, a sad finish. But very sadly, you say, it all goes really well. Yeah. And then it all goes downhill again. So, it's an interesting one when we come to uh, judge that in terms of scores and rex factor, because there's positives, but then there's negatives. Yeah, well, let's see how this balances out. Let's see how it balances out. So, first off... Battleliness! There's a lot of good here. Oh, blimey, An yeah. awful lot of good. Um, as a general, as a soldier, right from the start, he's desperate to prove himself. There's a prophecy that he is the new Arthur... And in a minority with Mortimer controlling, he's desperate to show himself mm. as well as being better than his father, Edward II, who was such a disaster. Mm. Buys lots and lots of armour as a young man, lots of lances, takes part in tournaments so people can see that he's getting involved. And indeed, 1327, when he accompanied Mortimer in that campaign to Scotland, unusually, before the battle, Edward was riding among the men on the front lines, encouraging them in the fight, encouraging strong discipline. Which apparently was the kind of thing which Edward I, Edward II didn't do. Really? This sort of big speech. Oh, the generals and sit at the back. Yeah, yeah so he's really getting involved. 1333, Battle of Halladon Hill, he has his first taste of uh, real mm. fighting. And it's a great victory. The Scottish forces came to raise um, Edward's siege of Berwick nearby. And were numerically much superior. But Edward got the English on a very good position on top of the hill. Looking down on the Scots, who had to cross this boggy marsh. And then up the hill. So as they're coming over... Archers do lots of damage to the Scots, and then finally they get to hand-to-hand combat. Edward apparently the first to sort of launch into the fighting. He's there on the front lines of this. Eventually the Scots can't break through, retreat, and are pursued by the English on horseback. Great win. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one. Check. One battle done. 
1340, the Battle of Sui, the naval battle. As we said, England were under threat. The early war efforts weren't going very well, costly, not making any impact. Montague, his great lieutenant, had been captured, and the Allies are in something of a disarray. And Philip VI's fleet apparently was so large that they'd had to prohibit wool exports from England because of the fear that it would just be captured by the French. Right. Despite yeah. this, Edward is determined to go after France and attack, even though people are saying it's too dangerous, and Philip VI basically thinks, if I can take Edward out here... Yeah, job done. Job yeah. done. Off Edward goes to take battle to them. The French have got about 200 ships and galleys all along the um, mouth of the river Zwin, or Zvin. Right, where's that? Over that in Europe. I suspect it's somewhere sort of Flemish country, oh, right. I imagine. Um, and about 19,000 troops on these ships. England, Edward III, has got somewhere between 120, 150 ships, a lot less, and only about 12,000 men. Mm. Many, many less. So Edward comes up, they draw up anchor in sight of the French fleet, wait overnight on constant alert in case of a mm. surprise attack, and then he waits until early afternoon when he's got the sun, the wind, and the tide all behind him. Launches the attack. Big smash attack. Off they go. So the th- first three lines of English ships advance with Edward's ship right in the centre, right at the front. Longbowmen sort of sweep the French decks, even though they're bobbing up and down, they're taking them out. And then they launch, physically launch, into the French ships. And they've got something of an advantage here, because although the French ships have got more in number, they've almost got too many. So they've got three lines of ships. And the first line is preventing the second line from being able to do anything. Yeah. So they just have to sit tight while the first line does its business, which means like that... Like a shield wall. Like, like a shield wall, but it doesn't really work with ships. Because you can just move in front with a shield wall. Yeah. So basically, all of the English ships just pile into that first line of the French. Furious fighting, the arrows are going, hand-to-hand combat, Edward apparently standing on the deck shouting out orders, carried on even after a French arrow or spear struck him in the thigh. It's still going on, right in the thick of it. Later in the afternoon, it's a long old day, the English break through that first line, so they're now onto the second line of French troops. Meanwhile, the third line thinks, "Mm, doesn't look like it's going very well. They scarper, so the French abandon their second line. Meanwhile, his Flemish allies, who are watching from from the coast, from the coast range, think, ah, it seems to be going quite well, maybe we'll join in. So they come out on their ships, and suddenly the French second line is now just surrounded. So it's now sandwiched, yeah. And snared. And basically absolute total defeat for the French. Something like 17,000 Frenchmen are thought to have been killed. Blimey. Because there's no escape. They're killed or drowned. They're way down by that arm, and there's nowhere for them to go. And Edward captures 166 ships, only 24 get away, and basically destroys the French fleet. So there's no way now the French are going to be able to invade, because he's taken them out. Wow. Brilliant. Why don't we know him like Nelson? Indeed, it's a massive naval <laughs> yeah. battle. Yeah. I mean, that's that's, that's a, as big a defeat as, as Cressy, and mm. I've never heard of it. What was it? Slui. Slui. Maybe that's why people <laughs> Yeah, <out>. exactly. <laughs> but then, of course, we come to Cressy. Mm. It's a brilliant campaign, 1345 to 47. 1345, Henry Grosmont, who becomes the first Duke of Lancaster, um, he defeats the French at the battles of Bergerac and Oberoche, basically retaking the territory they'd lost in Gascony, but then he gets besieged at Aiguillon, so he's hemmed in. But then overcomes Edward in 1346, lands in Normandy, which is a very pointed landing, very symbolic, yeah. of course, yeah. referencing 1066, referencing the fact that it was English territory once. Yeah. He even pays homage to William the Conqueror while he's there. He goes and visits his grave. Where in the abbey he built, was it? Yeah, in yeah. Normandy. Yeah. And then he diverts the siege. So Philip VI leaves um, Aiguillon, follows Edward III. 
So Edward's progressing through France, takes Caen, and just trying to get to a place where he can take up a good position and a good site for mm. a battle, while Philip is trying to catch him, knocking down all the bridges along the way to try and hem him in. That's brilliant. So it's also like um, uh, 1944, because that's exactly the route that they took, Captain Cannon and all those places. Yeah, brilliant. Exactly. And in fact, the same beach is probably... Yeah, it would be normal, yeah. yeah. Eventually, they come to meet at Cressy. The French, again, have a huge numerical advantage, about 35,000 French troops against about 15,000 English troops. Mm. Massive difference. The English, again, well-positioned on top of a hill. And Edward, this time, he's not on the front lines. He's apparently on a windmill, or at least on a hill where there is a windmill, where he's watching the events and giving out orders like a general. Yeah. He's in touch. Initially, Genoese crossbowmen of the French um, come forward, but their first shot all falls flat. They've misjudged the distance. They don't make any impression. And then, about 6,000 of them, these Genoese, and they get beset by 5,000 English archers. Now, the English can fire about... Each of them can fire six arrows a minute. Mm, By longbow. Yeah, so apparently that's about 30,000 arrows per minute in total. Yeah. That are storming down. It's said to have been like snow, and you say black sky. Devastates the Genoese. So then the French send in the cavalry charge, and they have 15 cavalry charges, all broken down by the arrows, archers. Only one of them manages to get through to the English lines, and that gets defeated. Ultimately, the English knights took to horses, rout the French, and it's a massive victory for the English, who only lose something like 300 men. And and what were the initial start-up numbers? 35,000 for the French. 15,000 for the English. Wow. Overwhelming victory. And of the French who were killed, I mean, we're talking knights, barons, counts, m- very important people, as well as obviously thousands yeah. and thousands of ordinary troops. Yeah. Crikey Moses. Huge victory. And then 1347, a year later, he collects about an army of 32,000, the largest in the Hundred Years' War for England, mm. and uh, besieges Calais mm. successfully, yeah. which then stays English for a very long time. And he's such... Um, standing now in Europe, he's actually offered the chance to run for the election of Holy Roman Emperor. Really? He decides not to bother, but that's the status that wow, he's achieved now. Wow, but if he did, think how different it would all turned out. Maybe, maybe. Wow. That's the, this whole Genoese business, a bit of an aside, but mm. um, Edward I, from um, again, got to squeeze <laughs> him in somewhere, um, uh, could have discovered the, the benefits of the longbow in his Welsh campaigns, because it was um, originally um, Welsh archers used the longbow, and yeah. um, and you know English U was better, uh, but there's um, but hired Genoese crossbowmen mm. because of their accuracy. So it's interesting that they failed here. Mm. And um, in one of his, uh, the, the Welsh castles, there's there was a found a Genoese crossbow bolt head mm. in next to the arrow slit. So they were actually that accurate. They were trying wow. to fire into arrow slits. Amazing. As well as his own um, battles, he creates a real Arthurian chivalrous court. Oh, so Age of Chivalry, we're back into this. Absolutely Age of Chivalry. Um, Lots of tournaments, a new style where you have formal single combat replacing the mock battles, although they Mm. still have that. Something like 55 tournaments held between 1327 and 1357. So a huge number of these big, spectacular events. So about three a year. Three a year. Brought the nobles together... Um, in terms of unity, in terms of them having a sort of culture of warfare, a culture of courage, and they're being trained for the battles, basically. That's yeah. So they're all so that so that instead of it, the nobles being against the king, he's trying to get 
a cohesive national Absolutely. identity. It's like training the um, Manchester United and Arsenal teams together to play <laughs> yeah. as England. Yes, it's <laughs> a good idea. Um, and he makes changes as to the peerage to make it a bit more honourable. Indeed, creates the rank of Duke. It was a new rank designed for the very, very top men. Your namesake. Indeed, that's where I come from. That's where you come from, yeah. And of course, most famously in terms of chivalry, you have the Order of the Garter, which oh. comes into pl- um, playing in uh, 1348. So this is a noble fellowship of his greatest leaders, about 26 members, as well as the king, who are to be co-partners both in peace and war. And so honour in war was really the only criterion of being a member. Um, exclusive chivalric order, based at Windsor Castle in the um, Chapel of St George, it's a traditional story that it gets its name from the Countess of Salisbury when her garter fell off and Edward sort of picked it up and put it around his knee. And when everybody sniggered, he responded, Honey sui ki mali ponce, he ought to be ashamed who thinks ill of it. So, and this is now where we get uh, Knights of the... I mean, it's still going it's now. Still there, yeah. It's still there now, the Order of yeah. Garter, yeah. And because of this, he has very, very able lieutenants at his disposal mm. who are incredible men in their own right. We've already had uh, discussed William Montague, who of course yeah. had that daring rescue of him from William Mortimer. Sadly, he dies following wounds in jousting in 1344 and is buried at Bisham Abbey, so he doesn't actually get to take part oh, in the great events of, um, yeah. of the campaign. We've already mentioned as well Henry Grosmont. Initially the Earl of Derby later inherits Lancaster and becomes its first Duke and won those battles at Bergerac and Oberosh which recovers Gascony in 1345. Mm. He wins huge acclaim as a great soldier, an international statesman, and sort of Edward's right-hand man on these campaigns. Another brilliant character, Sir Walter Manny. 1346, he fought with Lancaster at Bergerac and Oberosh, and he had this brilliant war cry, which is basically just his name, Manny! <laughs> That's out, Manny! fantastic! <laughs> this sword drawn. Um, he helped defend Aguillon from uh, a French siege, and apparently, pretty much for fun, made numerous sorties out against the French while they were being besieged. And there was one occasion where, vastly outnumbered his horse, all the other men with him were killed. A rescue party came out to relieve him, where they found him surrounded by Frenchmen, fighting all by himself with them all around him. And he's just loving it. Just loving it. (laughs) Later got captured by the French, but then escaped and continued off to help with the siege at Calais. This is, I mean, this is all... The age of escapes and daring it's, attempts it's amazing. is brilliant. Another one, Sir Thomas Holland, again, 1346, apparently used distraught to find a bridge um, at Rouen destroyed, which meant that they weren't able to go across mm. and pursue the French king. So, upset, he goes looking for Frenchmen, can only find a couple of knights, who he then kills, and then he returns to the edge of the ruined bridge and bellows repeatedly as some rather bemused Frenchmen on the other side, St George for King Edward! St George for King Edward! Just wow. again, this sense okay, of honour so and I'm the man. Yeah, sword held aloft. A real sense of it, isn't they? And the brilliant, absolute favourite one, Calais. 1349, Philip surprises Edward by plotting to take Calais back. So 1350, Edward and his troops go off over to um, surprise the French, who are going to get in because a man is going to betray there, the city of Calais. It's the gatekeeper chap. Indeed, but the yeah. English know about it. So they're there, waiting, hidden in the town. An advance party of the French is led into the castle, but of course they end up being led into the room where Edward and all of his knights are hiding. And as soon as the French go in, they're confronted with this rather grim and ready-for-battle-looking knight right in front of them in full regalia. Which is Edward. 
is not Edward because then bellows out, Manny! <laughs> Manny to the rescue! <laughs> Literally said, Manny to the rescue. And he goes storming straight into the oh, heart of the French. Goodness. But then he stops because he thought the whole French army was inside the castle. Yeah. So as soon as he gets out of the room, he realises there's nobody else there and he looks around a bit confused and then says, What? Do they hope to conquer the castle of Calais with so few men? So they arrest the French advance party, wait out for the rest of the army to come in. They've got the drawbridge prepared, so as soon as some troops go over, they drop that, trap some people there, get rid of them, and then Manny, with Edward by his side, storms off against about 800 Frenchmen, and they've only got a small retinue. Edward's unmarked in terms of his armour, but then he lifts up his visor, and so everyone can see him and shout, St Edward and St George! So everyone thinks, God, it's the king. So the Black Prince, his son, and all his troops suddenly quickly run together, and they all go charging at the French who had expected basically just to walk in and take it, completely flummoxed, get routed, Calais is saved. This is like an episode of Flashman. <laughs> it really is. They're just doing it, they're all having jolly japes, and then it all goes south and they start dying. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, we have the legendary Black Prince. Yeah, yeah. This is Edward's oldest son, who was born in 1330. Um, his actual name is Edward, he's Edward Woodstock. He wasn't known as the Black Prince at the time, but I think he came to be known as that probably because um, he may have worn black armour. All right, and he needed a legend. Indeed. He wins his spurs at Cressy, so it's him who's in the front lines of the fighting rather than his father, Edward III, even though he's only 16 at this stage of the Black Prince. Yeah. And apparently the one charge that made it through English lands, they went straight for the Black Prince, tried to capture him. He fought with lots and lots of knights. Edward's bodyguard was sent to come and try and relieve him after initially he said, no, no, let him do it by himself. Yeah. And when they eventually arrived, they found uh, the Black Prince leaning on his sword, laughing beside a pile of French corpses while he was catching his breath before the next assault came along. <laughs> Done the business himself. And laughing, he's just laughing away. He's, oh, brilliant. And then, of course, it's him that has that great uh, victory at Poitiers. Much more chaotic battle than at Cressy. It's really hard hand-to-hand fighting again, less of, in terms of the archers. Uh, but again, it's a great victory for Black Prince. He captures the King of France, another win. Why are the French quite so hopeless, or is the English doing just superbly well? Well, uh, prior to this, French basically hadn't lost in battle for about 150 years, and it was yeah. the English who were considered to be rubbish. Yeah. I think basically the English have been just preparing incredibly well, and the French were just taken aback. It's also the tactics. Mm. The archers absolutely yeah. undo the knights. And you've got a new uh, dynasty. That's a new bit of, dynasty struggles. Yeah, so there's probably some political stuff going on in that. So night. 1360, it's unprecedented military success. It's the best we've ever had by a mile. Yeah. That, I mean, that's big, big score going on right now. But then there's some bad stuff. Come on. Ironically, in many ways, this reign is seen as being the death of chivalry. Yeah. How does that work? Partly we have total warfare. Unfortunately, English troops are not well behaved when they get to France. They plunder, they burn, they rape their way through France in 1346. Really quite horrible stuff, particularly at um, Caen. Mm. In many ways, to draw out Philip VI or force him to come to battle because they're doing so much damage. Not very chivalrous behaviour. Indeed, mm. the Black Prince sacked um, the city of Limoges when the town betrayed him and was shown to be a great hero of warfare, but he didn't have the skills of statesmanship. Mm. Struggles to keep no, control of in places, indeed. And they're never able to completely conquer, so they never quite take Scotland. In 1359 to 60, they did launch a campaign basically to finish off the French, but it went a little bit awry. So they, again, they never quite managed 
to get that final nail mm. in the coffin of the French. Yeah. And of course, 1360s to 70s, we see a French decline, so an um, English decline in France. So Charles V, the new French king, very aggressive, gathers able administrators, improves the financial resources, and transforms the completely dilapidated army and country, almost in anarchy, into a fighting force. In England, if they get a bit complacent, they don't do the same. And of course, we'd have the death of all these great leaders, so the Black Prince is ill and then dies, mm. Manny is dead, um, Duke of Lancaster dead, Montague, all these great men die out. And Edward is old, he's losing his mind a little bit, or it's certainly not as um, yeah, clear as he once yeah. was. And there's no affinity with the new men who aren't of the same quality. So we have a massive loss of land, as you said, he ends up with just Calais, parts of Gascony, no re- more really than he started with. And, um, it, 1372, they even have a naval defeat off La Rochelle, so they've lost that superiority at oh. sea. So, for all that glory and success, it then comes back again. He almost ends up pretty much where he starts, although he does have Calais. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, how but do you rate how that? How do you rate that? Because it's so, so good. But then if it ends in the same way... Mm. The problem, in many ways, is that he lives for so long. If he died in the, sort of the 1360s, yeah, absolute legend. It's because he carries on living that he lives to see his successes, yeah, fall away. But you think when Henry II um, was defeated by Richard at the end of his reign, he then died soon afterwards. Yeah. So would he have been greatly marked down if he'd lingered for mm. another ten years and seeing mm. it get chopped away? It's difficult. Yeah, I mean it is tricky, isn't it? You wonder. Should have done a Kurt Cobain. Yes. <laughs> they could have produced a rubbish next album. Well, it was thought in um, 1372, he was planning a campaign. Oh, maybe 1369. Anyway, late in the period, he was planning a big campaign. And it was almost suggested by one historian that maybe he wanted, like Edward I, to die on campaign. Mm. So that he would be remembered for that. Yeah, you've got to die at the peak. Of the yeah. So, yeah, how do we score that? In many ways, this is the best battliness we will ever see. Yeah, because he's total nearly... medieval brilliance. Yeah, I the diff well, but it ends up neutral mm. because he doesn't mm. lose land, mm. so it can't. I I don't think it can be below five. Bear with me, I'm going higher. <laughs> but um, so he sort of peaks. He he goes up to a nine and then falls back lower. Mm. Um, but because of that initial, I mean, it's hard to judge something where where it's not. Where you just have a peak, but... Mm. The other thing to consider is what he inherits from his father, Edward II. That's very true. And Edward II, the Scots had had an overwhelming victory at Bannockburn mm. and were running amok. In France, they were losing lots of territory and were at the point where they're fearing a French invasion. Mm. Ultimately, he's contained the Scots and the war is very much in France now. There's even a quote from Edward III referencing the theory of war where it says it's better to fight your enemy on his ground rather than let the war mm, come to you. Mm. So he's kept England secure yeah. and safe the arms and he's pushed yeah. everything out. I think it's jolly good. I mean, when, when you think back to those episodes we did on um, uh, Edward II, or even to an extent Edward I, it was mm. all um, it was all a bit dark. And it was with Edward I there was good campaigns, but it was the birth of that. Edward II mm. was all hopeless and horrible. Here you've got this, their eyes, fun campaign, <laughs> they're just... Endless victories, but and then... I've missed a lot out as well. Yes, yeah. as well. And then he has... used to struggle even just for an interesting battle. Yes, exactly. Now about five of these battles. are better than 
yeah. most that we've had before. And it goes bad when his personal life kicks off as well. And when he gets old. And when he gets old, yeah. But do you think four French kings in this reign? Or one it? Edward III? I, I think I'm going to judge it, and I, you know how much I like Edward I. I'm going to go as good as Edward I. What do I give him? Eight or nine? I can't remember. Nine. I can't see how you could go below nine, really. Mm. Well, because he loses it, but he loses it not for battliness reasons. Yeah. Clearly, battliness reasons, <laughs> he loses the battle, but I'm going eight. Ooh. I'm going 8.5 <laughs> because I just feel it's. It, I've got to. I think nine is the best I'm going to go. Uh huh. Unless, you know, total... Unless he'd captured France and done it. Yeah. Um, he didn't. And it went back to neutral, but at least it was there for a bit. It's 8.5. I'm going to give him a 9. Despite all that, I just think it's so incredible before. And although he does lose it, I think... I don't know. I'm going to He doesn't nine. lose it, does so he? Good. He doesn't great. really. He doesn't yeah. lose it. It's just the passage of time mm. that loses it. Yeah. Okay. So that is... 17.5 for battliness, uh, second highest behind William the Conqueror. A very good start. Mm. Scandal. Not an awful lot to go on, actually, for Scandal. Um, it's really Alice Perez is the main thing, his mistress. He was generally quite faithful and devoted to uh, Philippa, but in later years came to rely on Alice Perez. She was seen as controlling him, wielding political influence, and... It was ill feeling enough that we have that good parliament, 1376, which actually seeks to banish her. Mm. So she's clearly pretty notorious. There's even a story that while he was dying, she removed a ring from his finger and then abandoned him Crikey. at the bedside. May not have happened like that. Yeah, that sounds maybe a bit like trying to rubbish her. But that's all you've really got. Otherwise, we've got the plundering of France, which wasn't particularly scandalous at the time, but looking back, isn't very pleasant. No, I don't think there's much there, to be honest. That's all it is. He's not really a scandalous king. He's just got too much time... He's just having too much pursuing fun. ...pursuing glory. Yeah. yeah. I can't give him anything beyond a, a one. He had a he had a uh, mistress. You'd expect that. You'd hope that, really. Mm. But she was more than a mistress. I suppose she was a nasty mistress. Yeah. Caused problems politically. Uh, so that's, that's one. Yes. And then he's got the campaign mm. sort of skullduggery, but... Yeah. 1.5. I'm giving him a 2. Yeah. There's not much there. No. Three and a half for Scandal. Subjectivity. There's some good stuff to go on for subjectivity. Despite how he treats the French, he actually shows a lot of mercy in England. After Mortimer, although Mortimer himself is executed, there are no further recriminations. So whereas under Edward II, whenever a, factor, a, a faction came to prominence, wealth of executions and people killed all over mm, the place. Yeah. Edward doesn't do that. In fact, the grandson of Roger Mortimer actually gets restored to all of his um, grandfather's titles and proves a very faithful supporter of Edward. Oh, so he is actually able yeah. to forgive people um, for the yeah. benefit. And, of course, we have the chivalry. We've seen the benefits in terms of battliness in mm. having that nobles all together. But for subjectivity, the order of the guards of the tournaments, we get that sense of unity of people yeah, at the top. Exactly. So rather than all the rebellions... And remember, the first abdication of um, English history oh, yeah, in yeah, the previous yeah. reign, suddenly they're all together, and the Hundred Years' War gives them this glorious, profitable outlet for the nobles. So besides the elderly and infirm, all the major earls and lords served in at least one campaign. Yeah, and so he filled the coffers with all this French money. Yeah. That's got to that's feed its way back. And you think, in the period, given what had gone before, given what's going to come later, mm. 50 years of pretty much stable, peaceful times in England. Well, we'll come to that. But Sorry, yeah. I'll give that one away. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, 
incredibly yeah, physical. Really great achievement. Parliament, as well as a good time, it's really a consultative monarchy that Edward III does. So he meets with the barons, the clergy, the merchants. He needs their support to fund um, all the wars, the Hundred Years' Wars in France. And he proves a capable negotiator. He's willing to bargain. He's willing to cede um, some ground in order to get that yeah. support. So he he's willing that, to... Yeah, that good government. The good parliament, good, 1376. Good parliament, yeah. He's, I mean, he's not even really a witness to this. He doesn't have any idea oh, what's yeah, going on. But it's a big step forward for parliament. Yeah. It's the longest ever assembly for the time at 10 weeks. The most number of petitions, 146. And it's the first time that we have an appointed uh, speaker of the House in Peter Delamere. He's a man who bravely speaks up and voices the Commons' view. And it's the first time where it's the Commons and not the Lords who are really dictating what's going on. Oh, like on. the merchantmen. Like yeah. Like, yeah. Mm. So that's, you know, good yeah, development of Parliament. As some good government, they delegate greater authority to the shires and the local government in terms of dealing with uh, justice. So there'd been a sense of a breakdown in um, law and order. So it's important development of the justices of the peace in this period. Right, so yeah. Greater yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, so more autonomy at the local level. Local level, yeah. so they're able to deal with things a bit more quickly. Yeah. And cultural patronage, not something which he gets remembered for, largely because a lot of things he does um, aren't really there anymore. They've fallen apart. But he's something of a Renaissance prince. Really? He really is. So um big thing for him is Windsor Castle, which was already there, but from 1350 he spends huge amounts of money, almost as much as Edward I spent on his Welsh castles. Yeah. That's how much he spends big on Windsor Castle. Indeed, but it. He turns it into a magnificent palace. So it's mm. not just this fortress. It's a beautiful, beautiful palace. Much of it we never see because it's still there, but private. It's the internal parts yeah. that the royal family still use. And his, presumably his Arthurian um, uh, uh, fetish, yes, if you will, <laughs> um, uh, he tried to express there. Because uh, I remember seeing a time team where they dug up a... Um, looked at an old chapel that was there, and that could have been where he held his. Well, yeah, what he council. wanted to do, he announced 1344, he announced he was going to build this sort of round house. It was going to be like his own round table. It was going to be a huge round stone building mm. where all the great nobles and knights would come and, they'd, the and they'd sit and they'd feast it. and they'd speak and they'd discuss war, and it was going to be huge. He loses the appetite for it because a few weeks after that, that William Montague dies, who was mm. his sort of closest friend, and apparently he sort of scales down and then eventually abandons the project. Apparently he actually gave up competing in tournaments for a few years after Montague died, because they oh, used to sad. sort of compete side by side Yeah, and together. it was his buddy who helped him yeah. get along. Mm. Mm, so that put pay to that. But still, we have all the Arthurian stuff, the chivalric court, all the sort of romances and tales and culture and literature. Mm. Um, he's the man who first um, employs Chaucer, oh, Geoffrey right. Chaucer, not the point at which the Canterbury Tales are written, but nevertheless, it's him who initially gives patronage, patronage to him. Yeah. Um, he's an architectural patron, lots of other buildings, such as Hadley Castle in Essex. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lots and lots of great paintings, because he has links to Italy. So mm. we see that sort of early Renaissance Italian style yeah, you come do. over. And it's always got that Arthurian tinge mm. to it, like it's um, Isabella being blessed at the yeah. scene of the Holy Grail or something. Mm. Yeah, Lots of great artworks. Again, a lot of it doesn't survive. He has a menagerie, like other kings before him, lots of large cats of lions and leopards, a bit overshadowed by the elephant and the polar bear of Henry III. Do they get drunk? I don't think they do. I think they just you know, trot about, yeah. eat things. Lots of the tournaments and courts resplendent with colour and extravagance. Everyone wears brilliant, bright clothes, jewels and pearls, mm. all dress up and look amazing. 
a national identity comes along, English becomes the official language of the law in 1362. God, that's taken 300 years. Mm. And um, he wins common support amongst the people for the French wars by rumours, not just that the French are planning to invade, but they're planning to annihilate the English language. Mm. It's right, a real fostering okay, so, sense of... Yeah, so he is, he's, um, he's trying to get this sense of nationalism mm. together. That's really good. And the Hundred Years' War, we've sort of seen it a bit previously, but we now really have a sense of England against France. Mm. So even though England are claiming they own France, it's very much the two countries against each other. Because there's been French wars in loads of these ones that we've been talking about, but I think maybe it's this case of a sense of identity mm. where it is the first time it's pitched like that. Maybe. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. However, there are some bad things again for subjectivity. The cost of war is absolutely huge. It's just like he ran out of money in 1341. Apparently he had to actually pawn some of the crown jewels. Really? It was so much. Gets them back. But it was only the successes in the 1341. 1340- 40s that made it possible to yeah, keep it going because yeah. it was so expensive. The legacy, of course, of this is that he's committed England to the costly Hundred Years' War. Everyone afterwards now has to maintain this claim to the French oh, throne. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. So, obviously, Hundred Years' War, but we haven't had Hundred Years. Big thing for subjectivity, and an interesting one. I don't know what we do about scoring this. It's the Black Death. Because, I mean, that has got cultural ramifications all Indeed. over the place, isn't it? Arrives in England 1348, spreads quickly, as you say, Scotland mm. by 1350. So it multiplies in rats, the disease, and it's taken up by the fleas. Mm. So when the rat dies, the fleas move on to find a new host, i.e. people, and then biting the human infects them with the blood. And there are actually two types of plagues. So there's the bubonic plague, where you get swelling of either the lymphatic glands near the wound, which is known as the bubo, bubonic, mm. yeah. also appears the neck, armpits, the groin, and this had a mortality of about sort of 60 to 85 percent, particularly prevailed in hot weather. The other one was the pneumonic plague, where the bacilli spreads directly from human to human, i.e., sort of sneezing germs. So, highly infectious and much higher rate of mortality, almost certain death. And this one prevails in cold weather. So, you're stuffed. So, you are stuffed, so it doesn't just go away with the yeah. seasons, it's different ones. Kills about a third of the population. That's huge, isn't it? That's sort of 30 million people now. Yeah, it's absolutely oh, massive. Yeah. Yeah. However, remarkably, very quick recovery in England from the first breakout. Very little impact, actually, on government or social stability. That was why we were able to just skip over it, doing mm. the biography, because it doesn't really change the grand events. Yeah. Things just carry on. Probably because there was a huge surplus population, which meant that vacancies in terms of tilling the land and the peasants could actually be filled very quickly. So it doesn't make too much of a difference. And, in fact... It's almost easier for the surviving peasants because they can buy up land more easily. There's an increase in wage while prices are dropping. So in some ways, things look up yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parliament isn't too happy about some of this, so they pass the Ordinance of Labourers in 1349, which tries to fix wages at pre-plague levels. <laughs> so they're so really working against the Commonwealth. Oh, yeah, they want to control it. And the Statute of Labourers, 1351, reinforces this and tries to prevent economic migration so that towns and areas don't just completely die yeah. out, people have yeah. to stay where they are doesn't have a great deal of effect but they're trying to control things it's the later plagues which really do the damage, there's one 1361 to 62, 68-69 74-75 three further outbreaks and as you see now there isn't the surplus population to just fill in the gaps there's a higher death rate amongst the nobility also among men and children particularly damaging, so it's that next generation which is yeah, really decimated down. Parliament believes that um, the inflation that came along because of the low wages, uh, high wages, low prices, they thought this was caused by people basically getting above their station. 
wearing clothes and eating food, which they weren't really... They weren't entitled to. So 1363, Parliament tries to regulate prices and what people were allowed to eat or wear. So by your social station, they wanted really? to control what things you can have. Doesn't work very well. 1364, they're forced to relent in favour of free trade. But we're seeing a rising conflict between government and the peasantry. And the yeah. peasantry getting a sense of their rights and a sense of, you know, we're not happy about this. Yeah, exactly. So if you've got you've got less people working the land, mm. and you've got one, whereas before you could have been fired or whatever, you've now got far more of a say. You can Do. really sort of push your weight around. And the legacy, of course, looking ahead, we're only 1377 when Edward dies. We're only four years away from the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, and this really is where it all stems yeah. from. Yeah. But how do we reflect the Black Death in subjectivity? Because when we've had Saxons and whatnot, you had to say, obviously, you don't want to be a subject in that time. It would have been horrible. But let's look for good things that the king does. So do we score Edward down for being unfortunate to be the king who had the Black Death in his reign? Or do we say, well, it just happened? Well, I think it did just happen, yeah. Well, obviously well it, it did. We can confirm that. If you're doubting, this is the Rex Facto exclusive. <laughs> it happened. Um, so he was unfortunate, but didn't deal with it very well in that he just did his subjects down. So that's bad subjectivity. So Although, yeah. was, was that mostly Parliament? Maybe it was more Parliament, but you know, he's assenting to it, certainly. But it is good for, the, good for subjectivity in the long run. But we can't yeah. judge I think we can only give him negative for that. Negative, yeah, indeed. So we're going to give him score. But he does have the other good stuff. As we said, the unity of the nobles, yeah. peace yeah. in England, good governments, yeah. otherwise cultural patronage. Overall, I think it's good. But, that, yeah, the Black Death bit brings it, it down. But, I mean, as far as subjectivity in the moment goes, mm. I think only the Black Death is, is really the one that I'm going to count against him. The rest is really, really good. Mm. But it's a biggie, the Black Death. It's a, it's a biggie, biggie, biggie. Mm. This cultural patronage is something that hasn't come up for a while. Indeed, he doesn't get a lot of credit for it either. He's yeah. forgotten in this I think it's good. Field. Mm. I'm going seven, because I think at the time... Uh, you, I can't think of anything bad there. You've got law enforcement, uh, cultural stuff, a good parliament, English unity, mm. wars abroad expanding. I suppose it's the legacy, really. At the end yeah. of the reign, you've got disunity. The nobles aren't yeah. really together anymore. Um, difficult inheritance for his young grandson, who's just a child. Yeah. Hundred Years' War, of course, is a difficult thing. The Black Death and the relationship with the peasantry is difficult. Mm. Like so many of the big kings we've had, they do really well. But the next guy's got a yeah, lot of rubbish yeah, to deal good, with. Good, bad, good, bad. Yeah, it? and they often inherit bad from yeah, the good king. Yeah, yeah. I still go seven. I'm going oh, just because I think all of this is something we have. This the good stuff is something we haven't seen in a while. This, um, but no, okay, no, hang on. Yeah, six point five because he, he, it is. It, it, I mean, it's got to be tempered somehow, and seven's a really high score. Hmm. I'm going to give him five and a half. I think. There is a lot of good stuff for which he deserves credit, but the Black Death is such a big thing and the legacy is so damaging, mm. ultimately, mm. at the end of the reign that England is then thrown into another reign of yeah. difficulty. So that's five and a half, six and a half, that's... Uh, what is that? <laughs> Twelve. Yeah. Yeah. Twelve for subjectivity. Not bad, not bad. Longevity. So he reigns from 1327 to 1377... That's 50 years, 5 That's zero. big. Big, big, Is that the big. biggest? Only Henry III, 56, 56 is longer, but that's an epic score. That is huge. Dynasty, not the programme. 
He had nine children that survived into their teenage years, but unfortunately only four actually survive him. So four surviving children. Mm. Complicated, of course, is that his grandson is the one that inherits the throne, which I don't think has happened before. No, we It's gone directly that. from grandfather to grandson, but we would not count the grandson as, yeah, as no, dynasty. We wouldn't, we wouldn't. So actually, his dynastic line in a strange way skips yeah. skip, it skips a generation even though he does have sons alive in particular John of Gaunt who will be a big character next week yeah his actual eldest son dies it's the next generation yeah so four four which doesn't include his successor weirdly that is, that, that is jolly weird mm. so um okay well that brings him to that brings him to a very impressive 87. He's up there with Edward I. Indeed, joint uh, second with Edward I. Exactly the same score. Joint second. And who have we got top again? William. Um, well, the top score was um, Henry II. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, that's his score. All very impressive, but it's been an interesting one. That's, yeah. And we now come to that final question. Does he have that star quality, that. the great achievement, the lasting legacy? Rex Factor! Unsurprisingly, yes. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's well, got it all, hasn't We've he? got to answer the for and against, I think. Because okay. we've got in favour, real-life Arthurian yeah. legend, the chivalric court, the tournament's a spectacle, military glory in the Amazing. Hundred Years' War, yeah. like nothing we've had before, and he unites the country in a long reign of internal peace. And let's not forget the way he came about. So the, the, he was right under the thumb, and first thing he did was put... Put that to bed straight away. Yeah, as no, a young man. Yeah. Inherited the throne from a rubbish king, mm. his father. Yeah, awful. But against him, it's a reign of two halves. From 1360, it all goes downhill. Loses all of the gains he'd made in France. Damaging legacy for his successor. Yep, yep, yep. And interestingly, if you make the Arthurian comparison, it's not just the courts and the spectacle. Because we have that initial sting where he's prophesied to be great unites the courts with campaigns and chivalry. Yeah. But you also have the Arthurian tragedy as well. But whereas Arthur, in legend, he has that last great battle, Bedivere throws Excalibur into the lake, and Arthur is sent off to Avalon to return again, the uh, once and future king. In reality, for Edward, all his old friends die, his family dies, he's at the bedside of his wife and his eldest son as they die, the glorious death away, and he grows old, loses touch. That's how it really happens. Yeah. But again, it's that Arthurian tragedy. It, yeah. So there. I mean, I think that's. I mean, that's. He's just doing it by. He's painting by numbers. Medieval. <laughs> <laughs> that's his. You know. That's that's his tragedy. And if you love medieval stuff, I mean, for all that you love, Edward the First. Oh. Apart from the castles, really, it's Edward the Third where all the medieval stuff really yeah, takes place. Yeah, the battles, yeah. the hand-to-hand combat, the campaigning. You've. I mean, you've got to. I mean, if you're looking for legendary status at this time, the the term legend changes with the era. You could, mm. wouldn't expect Elizabeth II to be wielding a sword and charging into battle. Impressive. Yeah, but if you are looking for that, he does it. He wins Cressy, and at the time, running in the front of the with the, in front of the troops, <laughs> rallying them, they'd be saying, "There's the man, the myth, the legend, Absolutely. the Rex factor." And he was a legend at the time. Yeah, a legend in his own time. Definitely, yes. So, you're a big yes. Definitely, yeah. I'm a big yes as well. He's been absolutely amazing. Edward III has the Rex Factor. Well done, Edward. You're one of the all-time legends in the Rex Factor canon, and you're there. You're one of the best. 
So who have we got next? Next up, we've got his grandson, Richard II. Right. And again, we'll see a little bit of a reversal mm, in fortunes do, once again. But that's all for another time, so... Um, sorry, quick, quick, <laughs> quick question. Is it possible to hear from Manny again? We're going to have a little um, offshoot from Rex Factor, which is Manny! The, <laughs> the Adventures of Manny in France, because <laughs> that'd be brilliant. I'd love to know more he about him. He was absolutely amazing. He was a sort of professional soldier, essentially, mm. so you said much more interested in just basically heroism rather than acquiring yeah. money or land. That was what he was all about. If you have a little Manny fact for us that we haven't heard today, email in. Indeed. Our tweet or Facebook. Yes, our Facebook. But until Richard's second next time, goodbye for me. And goodbye for me.